if you notice, I have a lot of tabs, so I have a lot of Bible verses, references. I even color-coded them. But when I timed this, I found that it was way too long. So, I put the... I put the Bible verses on my sheet that I'm going to be reading from. So I originally was going to go through each passage, uh, but that's just not going to work. And then the other thing, uh, to give you a heads up, I normally would read the whole, the Bible verses, 1 through 14, and then start talking about it. Today, to, to shorten this, I'll read the Bible verses and then go through them each. As we uh, at each uh, part of the the uh, the uh, message, well, I want to thank you. It's an honor to be with all you lovely ladies. And the first th- thing that I want to share is sometimes it's not what we hear, but how we hear it. Sometimes it's not what we hear, but how we hear it. So let me explain that you have some clutter going on. You may have to go go to work. You may have to go home and homeschool. You may have to go shopping. And you'll be that will be buzzing through your head as you go. Or we have our preconceived biases and so we have these things that just like our uh, through our sight and our hearing, it's our own perspective on how we see and hear things. I'll give you an example. My wife's birthday is in December each year. It's kind of towards the middle, first of the middle part of December. And she shared with me when we first met that she, uh, she kind of got felt cheated uh, during the holidays because she would get maybe one gift for her birthday and for Christmas. Sometimes she didn't get a party. So I always took it upon myself to try to make it special and clearly separate from Christmas. Well, this year I bought her a couple gifts, got her some chocolate, and had a birthday card already. And we were headed down the mountain, and she wanted to go to the Nordstrom's Rack. So I said, well, let me give her some freedom of guilt. And I turned to her and I said, sweetie, if you see anything at Nordstrom's Rack, get it. If you really like it, get it. She turned to me and said, you mean you didn't get me a birthday present? Sometimes it's not what you hear, but how you hear it. Let me tell you a story of little Philip. Little Philip had a rough time at school during the week, so Grandma decided she was going to take him home for the weekend and love him up. She picked him up on Friday afternoon, and they headed home, and she said, Phillips, let's, let's go to the park tomorrow morning. And he goes, yeah, Grandma, let's go to the park. So the next morning when they wake up, they look out, and the first snow of the season had visited you know, that first snow is refreshing, cleansing. It covers the trees. It covers the shrubs and the ground, you know, before the snow plow comes by and dirties everything up. Well, they start on their journey to the park, and Grandma's admiring the, the beauty that God created, and she turns to Philip and says, you know, it looks like God painted this just for us. And little Philip says, yeah, Grandma, and he painted it with his left hand. Well, Grandma paused a moment. She was a little perplexed, and she goes, well, how do you know he painted it with his left, with his left hand? And Philip says, well, I learned in Sunday school le- last week that Jesus sits on his right hand. 
sometimes it's not what you hear, but how you hear it. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together, Lord. And as we go through your message, it may be at your words, and may we hear it how you want us to hear it, not how we want to hear it. We pray that your presence blesses us, fills us, and fills this room, Lord. We pray that those words that aren't meant for our hearts disappear, Lord, and only the words that you choose today through this message to touch us lives in us and carries us through the rest of the day. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. So Rhonda asked me to do a quick review uh, of Romans, as it nor- and normally is what you do. So imagine hating Christians so much that the goal of your life is to put an end to their movement. Breathing murder- murderous threats, you travel far and wide to arrest anyone belonging to this dangerous movement. What Paul taught was so radical that even today many followers of Jesus still strive for understanding. But during this period of persecution, you come face to face with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And the course of your life takes a dramatic change. Preaching the same faith you once tried to destroy, your life accounts become epic stories of faith. Your letters are widely read. Your insight becomes the topic of debates for centuries to come. Apostle Paul was the man responsible for spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far reaches of the known world. The book of Romans is masterfully written. It's on God's grace and righteousness that comes by grace through faith. This book is the foundation of the entire Christian faith. It was so radical that Apostle Paul explained this gospel was received by direct revelation from God himself. The truth contained in the letter had the power to transform a murderous Pharisee Pharisee, named Saul, who today we know as Apostle Paul. It greatly influenced men like Augustine, Martin Luther, John Wesley, just to name a few. The reason for writing the book of Romans was to share the gospel and teach that teach us that our righteousness comes by faith through Jesus Christ apart from what we can do to earn it ourselves. So as we look at Romans chapter 1, 2, and part of 3, Paul writes about condemnation, the need for God's righteousness because we are all guilty before God. In the rest of chapter 3, chapter 4 and 5, he writes about justification through faith. All can be declared and made righteous. Paul writes in chapter 6, 7, and 8 about sanctification, the demonstration of God's righteousness and our restoration by God. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, he writes about vindication of God's righteousness through Israel's rejection and future restoration. And we get to chapter 12 and 13. Paul writes about righteousness of God in the demonstration of Christian duties. The application of our responsibility towards God, society, authority, and our neighbors. So what I've done is broke this chapter down into three parts. The first one, Part one is submit to government. 
And it's actually broken down into three sections uh, because there's seven verses in there. Um, so verse 1 of Romans 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authority, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. The governing authority, the connection between Romans 12 and 13 is clear. Christians are not to seek personal revenge, and it doesn't take away the government's authority to punish wrongdoers. In verse 1, every soul includes everyone, including Christians. Paul simply says that we are subject to the governing authority. This was in contrast to the group of zealous Jews in that day who recognized no king but God and paid taxes only to God. Our Savior is the perfect example of obeying and humbling himself to authority. He could have walked away from the cross. He could have walked away from the persecution. But he submitted himself because it was God's plan. God has a plan for us and a purpose for us. You remember Barnabas? He was one of those zealots that had been tried and convicted of murder and he was supposed to die on the cross. And Jesus took his place there. Continue in verse 1, For there is no authority except from God, and the authority that exists are appointed by God. We subject ourselves to governing authorities because they are appointed by God and serve His purpose and His plan. Apostle Paul wrote to the Christian church in Rome who were subject to an evil ruler, cruel ruler. The Roman emperor at that time was Nero. Nero persecuted Christians throughout the empire. But Paul continued to exhort the Romans to believe the Roman believers to submit to Nero's authority. In Titus chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authority, to obey, to be ready for every good work. No authority except from God. God appoints a, a nation's leader, but not always to bless the people. Sometimes it is to judge the people or to ripen the nation for judgment. First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether the king is supreme or to the governor, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. A perfect example of that is World War II. World War I set the stage for World War II. World War II set the stage for the nations of the world to have enough empathy for the Jews to return to their homeland. Yes, it took 6 million Jews to die. Another 1.8 million other civilians to die. That's not including the soldiers. To have the world who despised the Jews wherever they were at to have enough empathy to allow that to happen. God has a purpose and a plan. And sometimes it's horrendous what God has to allow happening for his plan to be implemented. 
We remember that Paul wrote this during the reign of the Roman Empire. It was no democracy and no special friend of Christians. Yet he still saw their legitimate authority. Our Savior suffered under Pontius Pilate, one of the worst governors Judah ever saw. Paul suffered under Nero, the worst Roman emperor. And neither the Lord nor his apostle Paul denied or disputed the authority. In verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Since government, governments have authority of God, we are bound to obey them. Unless, of course, they order us sometimes to contradict God's law. Then we are commanded to obey God before man. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, so they called them and commanded them to speak not to speak at all or to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you be the judge. They pulled that little trick from Jesus, turning it around on them. Uh, it, that, that also reminds me of the, the Oregon couple that had a bakery that refused to uh, they, they sold their, their goods to everyone that came in the store, but they refused to make a wedding cake to participate in a gay we, uh, marriage. We clearly know that in the, first, in the first book of the Bible, God tells us in Genesis that marriage is between a man and a woman. That was their belief. They refused on God's authority, and they were punished. They lost their bakery. They lost a way to make a living. And they owe $134,000. Maybe the courts will get it right in the future. In verse 2, those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. God uses governing authority to check upon man's sinful desire and tendencies. Government can be an effective tool to resist in resisting the effects of man's fallenness. In Titus chapter 3, verse 3, 4, we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceiving, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Well, I worked for the Department of Youth Authority in law enforcement for about almost 30 years. Um, the Youth Authority was, a, uh, was for those juveniles convicted of uh, felonies and uh, sent to prison. Now, I worked uh, for a time at the youth training school in Chino. It was off of Euclid. So it shared the property with the men's prison that was off of Central. We had a lot of acres there. I started out as a youth counselor, became a, eventually became a supervisor, and then shortly a gang investigator. And during all that time, um, one of the things that sets me apart from the local police, the sheriffs, the CHP, law enforcement that's in the field, is I would have a file as thick or thicker than this, sometimes two, and the horrendous cases, three on one juvenile. We called them wards. One time I had an all-Asian caseload. One time I had it all PC-187, which is the code for murder. I worked on one, one of 12 units with almost 200 guys, and my whole caseload was 
those sentenced on murder. Um, and there were still more murderers on that team than was on my caseload. I have saw the horrendous side of what happens. I have read files on individuals starting with their probation report all the way up through their commitment offense and then their time in the facility. I've read the horrendous cases, what the victims had to go through in their murder, their families, the rapists, the child molesters. There wasn't anyone that didn't have a serious crime that came to our facility. Where I worked was the largest juvenile facility in the world. We had almost 2,400 wards. In our facility, because we had uh, we weren't a dorm. We actually had cells. Our guys were from the age of 18 to 25. There were 10 other facilities, five different camps in the middle in the in the 1980s and 90s. There were approximately 8,000 juveniles in custody. When the gangs blew up in the in LA in the 70s and 80s, those were many of the guys that we got. Many of these were victims themselves before they became perpetrators. I've seen guys stuck with shanks. I've seen guys sliced in their face. I've seen staff or the aftermath of staff being stuck, attacked. It is, uh, it is why God has authorized governments to have laws to protect those that are innocent. In Romans 13, uh, 13, verses 3 and 4, in verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. Verse 4, But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on those who practice evil. In verse 3, do what is good and you will receive praise. Paul's, Paul's idea is that Christians should be the best citizens of all. Even though they are loyal to God before they are loyal to the state, Christians are good citizens because they are honest, give no trouble to the state, pay their taxes, and most importantly, pray for the state and the rulers. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplication, prayer, intercession, intercession, and giving thanks be made for all men, for the for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. Well, I guess it's appropriate being tax season that we mention taxes. Certainly not my favorite time of the year. When we talk about praying for our leaders, you know, the last four or five years, I had a difficult time dealing with the political correctness that was prevalent in our country. And as we got closer to the election, hope was darkened. The thought of four more years of the same political correctness. 
But I still prayed for our president. I prayed for his salvation. I know he called himself a Christian, but I seriously doubt that if he, he ever had a relationship with Jesus Christ. I prayed for Hillary. I prayed for Trump. He wasn't my selection. My prayer always was for a born-again president, but it's God's, it's God's is in charge. And I had to tell myself that for the last three or four years, especially during the election, God is in charge. God is in charge. He has a purpose. In verse 3, God, he is God's minister. Paul describes government officials as God's minister. They have a ministry in the plan and administration of God, just as the church leaders do. If the state rulers are God's ministers, his servant, they should remember that they are only servants and not gods themselves. All too frequently in this world, those rulers don't adhere to that. We see that much in the Middle East, in China and North Korea. But if you do evil, be afraid. An avenger, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. It is through just punishment of, of, of evil that government serves its function to God's plan of holding man's sinful tendencies in check. When a government fails to do this constantly, it opens himself up to God's punishment and correction. In verse 4, he does not bear the sword in vain. The sword is the instrument of death. It is a reference to capital punishment. In the Roman Empire, criminals were typically executed by beheading. Crucifixion was received for the worst criminals of the lowest classes. Paul, speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has no doubt that the state has legitimate authority to execute criminals. It's another sign of how Jesus humbled himself to place himself on the cross instead of Barabbas. It reminds me, though, of how this country has gone so far to the left, where the progressives, the communists, the socialists are okay with killing a baby, but protest the execution of someone deserving of the death penalty. We must continue to remain vigilant to stop abortion uh, and to abide by God's law of capital punishment. And we move to verses 5 and 7. Verse 5, Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Verse 6, For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. And verse 7, Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to taxes are due. Custom to whom customs. Fear to to whom fear and honor, to who honor. In verse 5, therefore you must be subject. We must be subject to government not only because we fear punishment, but because we know it is the right, it is right before God to do so. For conscience sake, believers must obey the government not only because it is their civic duty, but because it is their spiritual duty before God. 
In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 2, I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. In verse 6, you also pay taxes, render therefore to all their due. We also pay taxes to fulfill obligations of services. And because there is a sense in which we support God's work when we do so. Verse 7, taxes, customs, fear, honor. We are to give the state the money, the honor, the proper reverence, which are due to the state, all the while reserving our right to give God that which is due God alone. In Luke chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus said to render before to Caesar the things of Caesar and to God the things that are God. He made it clear in that participation that we that we have to pay our taxes. At least this year we get a little money back. We're happy. In part two, love your neighbor. Verse eight, owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Verse nine, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear fault witness. You shall not covet it. And there is any other commandment. All are summoned up by saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does not harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In verse 8, owe no one anything except to love one another. Primarily, primarily means to respect and honor others. On a personal level, the only debt we are to carry is the debt to love one another. This is an obligation to carry both before God and each other. Some take this commandment to mean never to borrow, but Jesus permitted borrowing in passages like Matthew chapter 5 verse 42 to give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you do not turn away. For many of us, if we didn't borrow, we wouldn't be able to buy that house. Some of us need to borrow to have that car. So it's clear that Jesus is saying that we, we can have debt. The debt they're really talking about is the debt to love our neighbor. In that sense, Paul is saying through the scripture to remind us the danger of obligation of borrowing. In Proverbs 2, verses 22, verse 7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrow, borrow is a servant to the lender. A quote from a Christian author, Gilbert Morris, we pay our taxes and be quiet. We may give respect and honor where they are due and have no further obligation, but we can never say, I have done all the loving I need to do. Love, love, then, is a permanent obligation, a debt impossible to discharge. In verse 9, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is echoing Jesus' words recorded in Matthew chapter 22 in verses 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments hang all the laws of the prophets. This is one of the two commands upon which hang all the laws of the commandment. In verse 9 also tells us, love your neighbor. It means to love the people you meet with people you deal with every day. To love those that look different or speak different. With people... And that is not always easy to do, but God commands, demands that we love real people. God will help us to love others through our relationship with Him and through the power of the Holy Spirit. As I can tell you personally, I couldn't do it without the transformation that God has made in my life uh, and the blessings of the Holy Spirit. You know, I said earlier about how you hear things, it's also how you see things. And I've seen some of the worst of humanity and, and, and I can't help but um, have an impact on how I see things. But it, God has allowed me to, to soften, to have a heart for those um, that have been evil, but are still maybe be evil and still to love them. In verse 10, love is a fulfillment of the law. Love includes murder, adultery, stealing, and lying. Therefore, when we love, we automatically fulfill the prohibition of the law. Our love is the true measure of our obedience to God. In James chapter 2, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Part 3 is... Put on Christ. These are the final three, four chapters, verses 11 through 14. It's a call to the urgency to love and walk right with God. In verse 11, And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we were first believers. Verse 12, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the work of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. In verse 13, let us walk properly, as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness or lust, and not in strife or envy. Verse 14, put on Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. In verse 11, we know through prophecy of Scripture, the time for Christ's return is drawing near. How important is it to it is to be awake out of sleep? We can do many Christian things, especially essentially being asleep towards God. And personally, I've I've done that. It's been a roller coaster ride, being wrapped up with work, family, uh, caretaker, uh, and sometimes you allow the world to weasel its way in. And I've certainly done that. And it is my prayer uh, of forgiveness that I've wasted so much time in my walk with the Lord. What a difference it makes when we are awake. When we are inactive in our walk with God, how can we fulfill His purpose for us? How can we profit God? We can't. Paul is telling us it's time to reach the pinnacle of of our walk in Christ. Get up. Get going, the night's over, 
There is no more time in the day to waste. In Mark 13, verses 35 and 36, Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the home is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, least coming suddenly, he finds you sleeping. In verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. The night refers to the present age during which lives Satan's domain. Day is the beginning of a new life in Christ in his glorious reign. Because we know the danger of the time and we anticipate the soon return of Jesus, we should be more energetic and committed to the right walk with God instead of a sleepwalk with God. In verse 12, cast off the work of darkness and put on the armor of light. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. The illustration is from taking off, taking off and putting on clothes. We do that every day. When you get dressed every day, you dress appropriately to who you are and what plans you have for the day. Therefore, every day, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as a parole agent in the field for almost 15 years, I worked in East L.A., I worked in South Central, worked over all over Riverside County, and worked in San Bernardino. I always dress with my gun, with mace, with my handcuffs, and a complete vigilance of my surroundings at all time. I kind of was okay in East L.A., kind of fit in. It was a different story in South Central L.A. When they saw this white guy driving the car around, they knew that Popo was around. I got out one time in the uh, off of Crenshaw in the, in the neighborhood called Rolling Sixties. At that time, it was one of the most violent gangs in Los Angeles. And they were having a feud with Florencia, which was a Hispanic gang. And I got out of the car, and there were five ladies across the street. And as soon as the door opened, I hear one of them say, Oh, there's Popo! And I, the mother that I was getting ready to visit um, to, to do a placement plan just to approve that her son could come live there came running out of the, the apartment and ran up to me, and she says, oh, never never come here without letting me know. I'll meet you out on the street. Well, I dressed, prepared, and vigilant. Um, but there are times, unfortunately, I've only had to draw my gun once, and I never had to shoot anyone. I know that I could do it because I was trained. I trained with the sheriff's department, I trained with our apprehension team, and there never was a training that I couldn't fire the simulated gun. But I'm glad that I never had to take someone's life. The one time that I did pull the gun, we were uh, I was with the sheriffs. Uh, we were hitting a house. It was a drug house. And uh, they sent me to the back, probably because I was more out of shape than the rest of them. And uh, 
As soon as I got back there, it wasn't about five seconds, and all of a sudden the door busts open, and this guy comes running out. And I drew my gun at him, and I, I yelled to him to stop and put his hands. Let me see your hands. Let me see your hands. Thank goodness he was more scared than I was, and his hands went up. Me and my partner then put him on the ground and cuffed him. We must cast off before we can put on. Charles Spurgeon wrote, The rags of sin must come off if we are to put on the robe of Christ. There must be taking away of the love of sin. There must be renouncing of the practice and the habit of sin. Or else man cannot be a Christian. The work of darkness are characterized as revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. These are not appropriate for Christians who have come out of the night into God's light. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, And have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Revelry is to party with drugs and alcohol. Lewdness has the idea of a man who is lost to shame. They no longer care what people think of them. They flaunt their sins openly, even proudly. We certainly see that today. The armor of light is related to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When we put on Christ, we put on the armor of God and are equipped to both defend and attack. Author Gilbert Morris wrote, Putting on Christ is a strong and vivid metaphor. It means more than putting on the character of Lord Jesus Christ, signifying rather, let Jesus Christ himself be the armor that we wear. In verse 14, Yet we are still called to make no provision for the flesh. We have a work to do in walking properly as in the day. Parentheses light. It it isn't as if Jesus does it for us and we sit back. Instead, he does it through us when we are willing and active partners with him. You can't be an active partner if you're asleep. God uses this passage to show Augustine, the great theologian of the early church, that he really could live the Christian life as empowered by the Holy Spirit. He just had to do it. And so do we. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. As believers, we should be clothed in Christ-like characters, such as the truth, righteousness, and peace. Truth in John 14.6, Jesus said to him, I am the truth. In righteousness, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, but of him you are in Jesus Christ, who became for us wisdom and God, from God and righteousness. And we must be closed in peace. Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. So as we summarize, it is a Christian's responsibility to submit to government because all authority is appointed by God. In addition, we are equipped, required, I mean, to love our neighbor as ourselves. It is a recognition that we do love ourselves and a, a command to love others just as genuinely and sincerely as we love ourselves.
Most importantly, we must walk in the light by putting on Christ. Believers should be clothed, should clothe themselves with Christ-like character, characters, characteristics, excuse me, of truth, righteousness, and peace. So remember, it's not always what you hear, but how you hear it. A story of how big God is. This is a story about a little girl on her way home from church, tuned to her mother and said, Mommy, the preacher's sermon this morning confused me. And the mother said, Oh, why is that? Well, the girl replied, Well, he said that God is bigger than we are. Is that true? Yes, that's true, the mother replied. He also said that God lives within us. Is that true? Again, the mother replied, yes. Well, she paused and said to the girl, if God is bigger than us and he lives in us, wouldn't he show through? It's not what you hear, it's how you hear it. So let's pray. Father, we just pray that your, your words today touch us in a way that grows us closer to, to you and our relationship strengthens our walk with you and our relationship and helps others, Lord, as we reach out to them. Put it upon our heart, Lord, that we love our neighbors as ourselves, that we put on your armor, we put on your characteristics, and we carry with them throughout this day and every day, Lord. May you bless us with your presence and may you fill our ladies as they move to their studies. And may you continue to bless us, Lord, throughout the day. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.